What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Wow, man. Film Spotting, just, you know, I want to... What were you doing? Uh, I'm doing a video for, uh, we we won the Golden Brick Award for Film Spotting. We did? Yeah. Yeah. What? From them? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Co-screenwriter and actor Jimmy Fails, plus director Joe Talbot there from their 2019 film called We Won the Golden Brick Award. (laughs) Yep. Hey, one of the great shorts of last year, Adam. Lo-fi shot on an iPhone. Uh-huh. Talbot and Fails, actually, the creative team behind The Great, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, the recipient of last year's Golden Brick, which goes to our favorite film by new or emerging filmmakers. This week, it's our Golden Brick special. We'll talk through the 2020 nominees. There are lots of good ones. There are indeed. All that and more. Wait, does this mean we're going to get to say shit house <laughs> Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh. I'm Adam. Happy Thanksgiving weekend, everybody. Josh, give it to me. What's your favorite part of Thanksgiving? What's the side dish? What's the part of the meal you look forward to the most? I'm going to go basic. It's the potatoes, any form of potatoes, really. Mashed is preferred, but the reason is the gravy. We just don't do gravy Mm. any other time of year. And I know it's not maybe that creative, but that's when I get to have gravy. I love it. Sarah's mom makes a mean sweet potato casserole because it's just covered in brown sugar. And you put enough brown sugar on anything (laughs) and it's really good. And also over the years, I mean, I know this is just an appetizer getting ready for the Thanksgiving meal. But again, from Sarah's mom, so we're going to have them this year, the deviled eggs with smoked paprika. Mm. Regular deviled eggs, no thanks. But with the smoked paprika... I'm good. I believe you've served those uh, when we've been guests at the camp at our home. So I know it's a favorite. There you go. If you're not able to spend the holiday with family or friends this year, we're glad you're spending it with us. Later in the show, we will revisit our review of Sean Durkin's The Nest with Jude Law and Chicago's own Carrie Coon. The Nest played in limited release earlier in the fall, but now it's available for all to see. You can get it via rental on demand. Yeah, that's one of those, I feel like this has happened to a couple of films with this weird release pattern this year. It's fallen through the cracks with this double release of very Mm -hmm. limited, then later online. So we want to give it a little more attention. Absolutely. One of the best performances of the year, maybe two of the best performances of the year with Carrie Coon and Jude Law, as long as we're talking about awards here on this show. And speaking of awards, first... The Golden Bricks. It has become a Thanksgiving tradition here on Film Spotting to look back at the movies we've nominated for our Golden Brick Award. It goes to a film directed by a new or emerging filmmaker. So another way to say that new to us, maybe we were vaguely aware of this artist, but have not seen any of their previous work. And there's some other criteria, Josh. Yeah, one thing we look for is, I guess we say, creative vision or creative ambition. So something either in the nature of the project itself or aesthetically in the film itself that really jumps out at us, that marks it as distinct. That's something else we look for. For sure. And this will somehow be the 11th year we've awarded the Golden Brick. 2009's Moon by director Duncan Jones was the inaugural recipient, the award christened, I'm pretty sure by a listener, like all the best things here on Film Spotting over the years, in honor of Ryan Johnson's debut film, Brick. That was a movie that we really championed back in the early days of the show, made for a low budget. 
obviously not a big studio release. Not as many people saw it as probably should have and certainly showed artistic vision and promise. And that promise is paid off as we've seen subsequent films from Ryan Johnson. I think overall, we've got a pretty good track record here with The Golden Brick, Josh. Yeah, look at some of the recent winners. Bing Lu's Minding the Gap, Koganada's Columbus, Anna Rose Homer's The Fits, Sean Baker's Tangerine. So yes, this was before The Florida Project. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, last year's winner, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. This week, we're going to talk about all the films that have received a nomination. We'll highlight those either by you, by me, by Josh, or the both of us. And then in December, we will narrow down this field to three to five films, maybe at the most. And then we will vote and select a winner. A very democratic process here on Film Spotting. Josh, we all only get one vote. Me, you, our producer, Sam. We spread it around a little bit. The listeners get a vote. And members of the extended, we like to call it Film Spotting family. Really, it's the Film Spotting podcast network. All the hosts of the next picture show, our frequent guest and contributor, Michael Phillips, the great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. And they'll always be part of the family to us, Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore, formerly of Film Spotting SVU and currently of Screen Crush and BuzzFeed. So everybody gets a vote. We put all the numbers in a blender and we give you a winner. Let's see what movies are on the short list, not the finalists, but on the short list for this year's Golden Brick. We're going to start with one, Josh, that you were able to catch up with just, I think, over the past few days. It's definitely on my list to see the second feature from director Brandon Cronenberg. Yes. Son of David, Possessor. Yeah, Possessor's been on my radar for much of the year, have been seeing uh, a lot of good word about it. Basically centers on an elite corporate assassin who uses brain implant technology to take control of other people's bodies and then terminates high-profile targets, exits the bodies when that's done, and so these hmm. people take the blame for it. So you've got- That doesn't sound like Cronenberg at all. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, you could see the influence for sure. You've got, you know, a sci-fi body snatcher premise here. Also, the hired killer psychodrama. And there's definitely part of that as we get to know this main character played by Andrea Riceborough. But there's two things real quickly here that I think people should know about Possessor. First is that this is, to me at least, extreme cinema. I mean, the violence in this thing, mm. I was unprepared for the intensity of it, the length of it, the brutality of it um, as these murders are carried out. And we can get into the, you know, the debate about, yes, violence should always be shocking in cinema. What what does it mean to cross the line? For me, um, it is so extreme that it did take me out of Possessor a little bit, but there are so many other things to admire about the film that I think it's worthy of Golden Brick consideration. And the second thing I want to mention is a Golden Brick criteria, and that is this idea of vision. These, I guess I will just call them possession scenes. So when Riceboro's character essentially takes control of, I won't give away too much of the plot, but the person she takes control of is a man named Colin, played by Christopher Abbott. And what we get is a tug of war between consciousnesses here because he <laughs> fights back in a way some of her other targets have it. And Cronenberg as a filmmaker jumps out at you in these possession sequences where there's a psychedelic glow to the screen. The cinematography here is by Karim Hussein. The the screen stutters and blurs at moments. Uh, her face melts and then reforms into his. When they look into a mirror, they see the other in a way that's distorted or disfigured. And there's a use of a mask here, Adam, that is 
as disturbing as what we get in Halloween with Michael Myers. And this is coming from someone who is, you know, uh, I've come around on Halloween to really appreciate that as a great horror film. So that that is saying something. This is a deeply disturbing movie, but also uh, a ton of talent on display here. So, yeah, I think it should go into the mix with the rest of the Golden Brick nominees. I need to know. I need to know what she's done to me. He's become a danger. Where is she? Come out or I'll do it! That movie is available to rent on most platforms, and the way you describe the violence, it, to me, sounds like a perfect match with your mashed potatoes. <laughs> Great. Over Thanksgiving. Thanks for ruining Thanksgiving now, Adam. <laughs> Appreciate that. The second Golden Brick shortlist title we're going to mention is a movie we have both seen, and that is The Assistant. It is the second feature from Australian-born director Kitty Green. We were familiar with her 2017 debut, Casting John Bonet. It was on our radar. It was actually suggested by many listeners back in 17 as a potential Golden Brick nominee, and we just never did make time for it, even though everything about that documentary approach blurring the lines between you know, fiction and narrative seemed right at my alley, but we did see the assistant. I think we both saw it, maybe Josh, in theaters before before all the COVID nightmare. At least I did. Yeah, it's possible to to go back in the before times, Adam. That's mm-hmm. very possible. Yeah, it, it's really strong, right? I mean, this is this is one that I think does have creative vision in the way it it uh, has a sense of suspense and terror quietly when i when i think mm-hmm. of the assistant it's like it's so subdued in my memory but yet so terrifying in the way green uses the filmmaking yes. to capture the claustrophobia of being in this office yeah and it is a movie as the title suggests about an assistant julia garner plays that character and it's really a day in the life a day in her life as she works for this menacing unseen really predator. We hear him and he's a powerful movie executive and you can sort of fill in the blanks from there. But this is a movie, Josh, that as you accurately summarized it, it gets its tension really from the tedium. Not unlike a movie that we recently talked about here on the show. And back when I spent a few minutes on The Assistant earlier in the year, I name dropped the movie Jean Dielman from Chantel Ackerman just by reputation. I like it so much better that now I can talk about that movie and reference it, having seen it and loved it and believing that it's a full on masterpiece. But of course, the assistant truly is just a day in the life, not three days in the life. And the length of the film probably more accurately fits into one of Jean Dielman's days as well. But I was curious whether or not this truly was a touch point for green or if it's just kind of an easy reference for critics like us and it turns out she absolutely had john dealman in mind at least according to an interview i found today josh over at rogerebert.com she says of ackerman's john dealman that was the first movie i watched maybe in my late teens or early 20s where i thought wow this is what a movie can be i was shocked by that movie that was the movie that made me want to make movies i guess that's always been in the back of my mind when this project started taking shape i did watch it again obviously it is inspired by it but i'm less liberal with time so it's a very different kind of film the focus on gesture and rhythm and just this idea of labor and showing kind of the mundane the cinema verite style of approach I always responded to. So there it is. That's definitely all there on screen in The Assistant, a movie that probably is the one that gets most easily and 
consistently identified as a Me Too movie from 2020, but she was writing, I think, even 10 years prior to this, so well before that movement really took off. And if you, like us, just saw Jean Dielman and were blown away by it, like Kitty Green was, and want to see a movie that takes a similar approach, The Assistant is one definitely to catch up with. It's available to rent on most platforms, and if you are a Hulu subscriber, you can see it for free. Yeah, in those fixed compositions, you can definitely see the influence of Jean Dielman there. And and we should note, too, you know, the perform- performances sometimes fall by the wayside when it comes to Golden Brick because we're focusing so much on the filmmakers. But Garner is excellent in this, mm-hmm. in, a, in a largely nonverbal performance, right? There isn't a lot of conversation yep. in this film, and she's so great. I, I, I didn't know who to come to. In that case, you came to the right place. So... I mean, it's just, uh, hey, it's just... Whatever's going on, you can tell me. That's what I'm here for. Um, there's this girl who arrived today. She... She's from Boise. Mm-hmm, okay. And she's very pretty. She's young. Okay. Yeah, she was waitressing in Sun Valley when she met him and he just liked her apparently and just gave her an assistant job and all right our next nominee is blow the man down this is the feature debut from a directing team Danielle Crudy and Bridget Savage Cole the plot synopsis grieving for the loss of their mother two sisters suddenly find they have a crime to cover up leading them deep into the underbelly of their salty main fishing village and i know adam speaking of performances uh we loved the lead performances here but also margot martindale uh, a familiar face uh, from so many films over the years but yeah a supporting role here as as kind of the the head of a sort of crime syndicate you could say in this small town and she's fantastic in it but the movie overall has a lot of creative vision to it yeah, and she's in conflict with, I won't say necessarily at war with, but in conflict with this triumvirate of matriarchs that actually kind of behind the scenes run the whole town. I mean, it really is just such a wonderful little universe that Savage Cole and Crudy have developed here with an incredible sense of place. Obviously, a Greek chorus-like aspect to it, the fishermen and Love the that. singing, right, that they provide great opening to the film. On a New England Isle in a good seaport town To me way, below the man down The fishing pays nicely if you don't drown Give me some time to blow the man down Where boys become green Just overall, a really assured bit of filmmaking, so... Blow the Man Down was one of my top five films of the year so far back in July or August when we did that list. And it's one I certainly encourage people to see available now on Amazon Prime. That brings us to a documentary, the feature documentary debut from director Arthur Jones. It's called Feels Good Man. And this is about the history, the legacy, the infamous legacy of Pepe the Frog and how it became this icon of hate and it documents 
to an extent because he's only so successful. In fact, fair to say he's not really successful at all. The creator fighting to bring Pepe back or to reclaim Pepe. This this creation that he made with the best of artistic and humanistic intentions, Josh, and never, ever could have imagined that it would have been co-opted and used and abused the way it has. I had no idea before I saw this movie who created Pepe the Frog, what its history was, why it was made, and how it had ever been used. I only knew it as this symbol of hate. And one thing I didn't mention when I discussed this movie briefly on a previous episode was the way I think Arthur Jones really cleverly and empathetically showcases his subjects in a way that I think they would want to actually be projected to the world. You know, so he's talking to a man at one point, I don't remember his exact name or title, but he shows up on screen and the way he shows him even kind of sit down and take his place, it's it's so in the spirit of who that man seems to be. And Arthur, it's a hard thing to describe, but Arthur seems to want to share that with the world. He doesn't want to just get the soundbite from him. He wants people to actually sort of get the essence of the people talking on screen. Yeah, this is one you saw well before me, Adam. So I just caught up with recently and it is fascinating. It's such a deep dive into really meme culture in general and mm-hmm. this specific case. Um, so that was that was definitely interesting to me. But, you know, a lot of times with documentaries, you can ask, is this any more interesting than a you know, a well, thoroughly researched, interestingly written um, feature piece of journalism, you know, and I think one of the things that distinguishes Feels Good Man beyond that are the animated segments that mm-hmm. are included here and there. And I know you talked about these two when you first brought it up, but Jones himself, along with Jenna Caravello and Kylan Woodrow, they take the Pepe figure and they kind of release him. They reclaim him and release him into these just mm-hmm. little, you know, 20 second adventures that pepper the movie that are very playful um, and genial. And if you see this whole documentary as kind of an act of reclamation, trying to reclaim Pepe the Frog, those segments jumped out at me as really crucial, interestingly aesthetic ways of doing that too. Whatever Pepe meant to all these other people didn't mean the same thing to me. I'm doing everything I can in my power to shut these assholes up. Answer the question I asked you. Can we turn a recognized hate symbol into love symbol? So, feels good, man. That is available right now to rent on most platforms if you want to catch up with it like I did. Our next nominee is Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. This is the third feature from director Eliza Hittman. Her 2017 film, Beach Rats, I watched that just before this came out. It's quite good as well here in Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. A pair of teenage girls from rural Pennsylvania travel to New York City to seek out medical help after an unintended pregnancy. Now, a lot of this film, Adam, unfolds in, you know, almost a cinema verite style. Mm -hmm. It's very low key, realistic, yet it kind of builds to something. I think we both highlighted scenes, particular scenes later in the film that just hit us 
super intensely. And I think that's the way never rarely sometimes always works. It, it catches you off guard with its power. And a lot of that is in the performances too. The lead character, Autumn, is played by Sydney Flanagan and she anchors the scene I particularly talked about when she is in a Planned Parenthood Center and is interviewed by a counselor about her past and finally lets her mask fall. Um, and we learn so much about her in that scene as, as she lets her guard down for the first time. That mm-hmm. that's, was the powerhouse one for me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we talked about this when we reviewed it. Both of these characters, these young women are clearly not passive and yet they do constantly seem to be withholding, right? Because they live in a world where expressing themselves or showing any vulnerability is really terrifying. Yeah. And in that scene in particular, the one that gives us the title of the movie, we see her being put in a position where she finally does have to give answers. She does have to express herself. She does have to share and be intimate with another person. And you can see how how scary that is for her. That scene really is her her testimony. And you get the sense that she's, through that process, she's reckoning with something she clearly doesn't really want to confront. So it's remarkable. And it's definitely a remarkable performance from Flanagan. Yeah, never rarely, sometimes always. That's available right now exclusively on HBO Max for rent. And I believe you can buy it on other platforms. Our next one is another documentary available to rent on most platforms, also free on Hulu to subscribers. It's The Painter and the Thief. This is the second film from a Norwegian documentary director, Benjamin Ree. His first film is called Magnus. It's about the world chess grandmaster Magnus Carlsen. I have seen that movie. I think that's also available on Amazon Prime. And it really is, Josh, just setting the foundation for what is a more formidable artistic endeavor, which is appropriate for the subject matter, which focuses on an artist named Barbara Kisilkova. And she's not a super famous painter, but is making a living has had some paintings that have done particularly well, and her two most valuable paintings are stolen from a gallery. We see the footage of that at the beginning of the movie. Two nameless, two borderline faceless people go into this gallery after hours and walk out and go their separate ways with two paintings. The police ultimately are only able to find one of the thieves who was in such a drug-induced state at the time that he has no recollection of what happened to the painting. And yet the artist decides to not only try to figure out his story, but really connects with him in a startling way and really sometimes in a scary way. Again, the intimacy here is something that comes through between these characters. I think it's safe to say they develop that type of relationship and it's one that brings out some great art in her. The art allows him to see himself in a way that he's never seen before, but it's not all sunshine and rainbows either. In fact, it's almost none of that, Josh. Yeah. And the the really interesting thing going on here too, is that Re has structured this almost as a two-parter. So we first experience it through the artist's point of view, and, and then we revisit a fair amount of the same 
sequences from the thief's point of view, Carl Bertel Nordland. And so mm-hmm. that kind of really um, allows us to get a full holistic sense of this relationship, which you're exactly right. It, this is not like an idyllic, you know, oh, they meet and become best friends for life. Yeah. I mean, it's as complicated as any relationship this intimate would be. And that's part of the fascination of, of this documentary as well. Yeah, because she's still an artist who is, no matter what feelings she may be developing or empathy she feels towards Carl, she's still scarred by the act, by having one of her creations taken and seemingly gone forever. And you can tell that there's a part of her throughout the entire film that never loses sight of wanting to know where her painting is, right? No matter what is happening between them. And we do get an end to even that part of the story, too, if you watch The Painter and The Thief again on Hulu and available to rent on most platforms. And that brings us to one more documentary, Josh, available now exclusively on Amazon Prime. Yeah, we've got a good bunch of documentaries this year. This is called Time, and it's from emerging documentary director Garrett Bradley, who's produced several shorts and a few other feature-length docs since 2014. For us, at least, this is the first one of hers that we've seen. In it, a woman strives to keep her family together while fighting for the release of her incarcerated husband. This uses footage that's shot over two decades by the main character, Fox Rich. And so it uses some of her footage while at the same time, footage that Bradley has shot, contemporary footage in gorgeous black and white cinematography, which partly matches the more archival footage, except that in its crispness, it's clearly more contemporary. And um, so, yeah, this this is just an interesting melding of, um, of chronology, really, and the way we mm-hmm. meet this family. We meet Fox Rich, um, you know, at, in middle age for much of the film and the contemporary footage. But then we see her when she was younger, when her husband, Rob, um, was sentenced for, uh, for armed robbery. This is what it was, a 60-year prison sentence for armed robbery and she spends these decades trying to get that reduced and get him out they have four sons and we see them both as young adults and little kids and we jump back and forth and and the editing here the editor is gabriel rhodes is is so crucial to this is when to move Mm -hmm. us from one time frame to the other so that you know as we discussed we we come to understand how time itself is moving too fast for this family and too slowly and the way bradley has constructed this really sits us in the middle of that my twins will be 18 next month they have absolutely no idea what it means to have a father in their house what fathers even do hello did you get any word from over at the big houses today nothing yet Okay. You got a chance to call today? I have not. No? Okay. Man, these people have no respect for other human beings' lives. If they had made this movie in a fairly conventional way, it'd still probably be a pretty good movie, Josh, Mm -hmm. right? It'd be pretty compelling. This is an emotional journey, even if we did just sort of catalog the events that led to her husband going to prison, her going to prison for some time, the aftermath of that, raising their kids, and then the struggle to get him released when you're facing a system that has pretty unfair rules. I'm trying to remember, Josh, now it's been a while since I saw the movie, but he was convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to what, 60 
years in jail with right. no possibility of parole. I'm not saying he, he shouldn't have gone to prison for some amount of time, but I think anybody hearing that can at least wonder if there needed to be some way to shorten that sentence. And she works very hard to try to make that happen. Again, if we just saw that story, it would be something, but it would not really allow us to experience the passing of time, really kind of the the purgatory almost these characters yeah. live in because they're just always stuck in a state of present, dealing with past and their regrets, and then this future that they're longing for, that, that they dream about, that they hope will happen. And the movie, because of its editing style and because of its cinematography, really makes you feel as close as to what you can as a viewer, what it must be like to go through a scenario like this. It puts us in the position of the characters in a way that most traditional documentaries definitely do not. So that's time. It's available exclusively on Amazon Prime. A couple more films we're going to put on the short list here for the 2020 Golden Brick. And yeah, it is my favorite one to say, Shithouse. <laughs> It's got the best title. Can we give it an award for the best sure, title or at least sure. the most fun title to say? Even though it's probably not really representative of the film itself. <laughs> no, you know? no, you're right. There's nothing really vulgar about the film at all. It's not basking in that type of vulgarity, certainly. But it's also a movie that I think you and I would agree. It probably doesn't fit the mold of a golden brick winner as much as some of the other titles in terms of its boldness, its experimental approach. Sure, that's fair. It's pretty straightforward. You know, there's a lot of comparisons to a Richard Linklater movie here if you're a fan of the Before trilogy. So there's nothing that is, I suppose, transgressive or really challenging about the style of Shithouse, which is the feature debut from writer-director Cooper Rafe. He also stars in the movie, but where I think it qualifies, and the reason why I think it needs to be on the shortlist, Josh is because of Rafe, in terms of a singular vision, as I just said, the writer, the director, and the star, and then also something we spent some time on during our review of it when it came out, his approach as an actor and his willingness to show his vulnerability, to show a side of masculinity that I think is something we don't typically see on screen. And that is how Shithouse is a bold film. What I've realized is that I haven't fully been here. College is the most selfish time of your life. The agenda here is not to learn how to be a great friend. What is the agenda? Figure out who you are. Figuring out who you are separate from other people. Yeah, I think the vision here is in the voice, right? It may not be in right. the aesthetics, but it's in the voice, which is, as you said, directly tied to Rafe, and he walks a very fine line here by having a light touch um, where this is a guy, you know, you genuinely like, you feel sorry for, you find him funny, but he never pushes it so far where he becomes insufferable. Um, and so I think that's one of the great appeals to Shithouse, uh, along with, you know, the the camaraderie with the, he has with the other supporting members of the cast too. So, mm -hmm. so I'm glad we could include this in the bunch. Shithouse is available to rent on most platforms. Now that, Adam, brings us to the one I'm really excited to talk about because um, the vast of 
Night is a film I saw earlier in the year, liked it quite a bit, definitely recognize it had golden brick potential. It's the feature debut from director Andrew Patterson. Uh, the setup here at the dawn of the space race, two radio-obsessed teens discover a strange frequency over the airwaves in what becomes the most important night of their lives and in the history of their small town. Um, the teens, I guess I guess the guy is a little older. He's the DJ at the local radio station. The teen is uh, a young woman who runs a switchboard. She's a switchboard operator for the town. So they come across this signal and it sets off um, these events. But there's a bold aesthetic vision here, absolutely. And I can't wait to hear what you thought of The Vast of Night, Adam, because I know you just caught it recently. Yeah. I mean, I understand why people were so excited about this, specifically within the context of a potential golden brick nomination. And the reviews for the most part of this film have been overwhelmingly positive. But I was on Letterboxd when I logged it and I saw someone I follow who gave it only two stars and said, Ed, no, I'm sorry. This really should have just been a podcast. And you know what? <laughs> I I understand that impulse to say that. I mean, I, I get it. I referred to the movie in my little blurb as Super 8 track. That's that's what it is. It's it's J.J. Abrams Super 8 to an extent, but with a focus on audio yeah. making <laughs> instead yeah. of It's like an old time radio right? show a little yeah, bit, right? That really is, of course, also through the prism of an old time TV show. Yes. That's one of the devices of the film as well, told in a Twilight Zone sort of approach. And I'm not totally convinced. I'll be honest, I also haven't thought it through, but I'm not totally convinced that device is all that effective or all that needed in terms of us going back and forth between outside of the TV set and then into the TV world, so to speak. But I mentioned that negative comment about it really needing to be just a podcast because I do disagree, Josh, when you consider the production design, the lavish production design here, the camera, which uses a steady cam and probably all sorts of other devices, including a crane to just move through this space, this town in a way that really does, at least to me, suggest almost an alien presence that that is undetected, but moves between these people as freely and as gracefully as it wants to. And then when it's not moving, this is another film, like many we've talked about, that relies on very still shots, lets people, it's primarily about letting people tell their stories. Mm -hmm. You're listening to people talk. You're watching characters listen to other people talk. And because of that cadence, that rhythm, the camera letting those stories unfold in front of our eyes in a way that isn't fussy, and then really making purposeful edits, not shooting a scene because there's three characters in it and it's dialogue. So we'll get a master and then we'll get coverage and get the close-ups and we'll cut between them anytime someone reacts a certain way. I'm thinking in particular of a scene where those two characters, you mentioned Everett and Faye, go and hear the story of an older woman that seems completely far-fetched and unbelievable. And we go several minutes before we ever cut to Everett and Faye in that scene. And when we do, you know why. But to get back to when Hollis was still a baby. One night after I'd nursed him, he was asleep in my arms and he started making sounds of an infant. And then they became clearer or vocal and then he spoke his first words 
And the same words I heard come from that confused woman at Charlotte started coming from the mouth of my 10-month-old in his sleep. I tried to tell a few people. I went to a doctor in another town. He said it was baby noises and I shouldn't tell anyone else. Hollis always behaved differently. It's giving her, as the storyteller, primacy. <laughs> you know, it's it's honoring her as the person bestowing this story on them. So, yeah, if you're into Super 8, as I was, if you're a fan of Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I think this is probably a movie that you'll appreciate as much as I did. Now, I know you liked it, Josh, but you maybe didn't swoon over it quite the way a lot of people did. I'm curious because I didn't read your review yet. I actually wanted to just hear it from you here on the show. What maybe held you back a little bit? Um, yeah, I mean, no major concern that pops up to me right now. I think maybe it's partly that Spielberg element. I think the more the climax here leans very heavily into close encounters and, you know, that why set yourself that bar because who could live up to the climax of close encounters and this certainly doesn't um but all the other things you described i'm very much a fan of and uh that scene you were just describing in detail adam that's where the that comment on letterbox comes from about couldn't this just be a podcast but but that's what i loved about the bravura mm -hmm. here is making the swerve from these showy single takes which is like oh this is cinema right to all of a sudden okay now we're going to plop the camera on this person's face there are two monologues in the film, the one you mm -hmm. talked about and then another one, a call that comes into the station where right. we don't even get to see. We just speakers. look at Everett. Right. Yeah. We just look at Everett. And in one of them, I forget which one it is, for a significant portion of time, the screen goes black and mm -hmm. we're just hearing those words. So yeah, you could snarkily say, why wasn't this just a podcast? But for me, part of the fun of The Vast of Night is the way it is melding all these mediums. So you have cinema, but you also have, as you mentioned, sci-fi TV, like the right. Twilight Zone. And you also have old time radio shows where it would be sci-fi or mystery driven and you just listen to the words. And in those two monologues, I feel like that's what Patterson is pulling from. Um, and so it's great fun to see all those things mixed up together, uh, which is what you get in the vast of night. It really is. And it struck me too, Josh, that it's a movie that has kind of a 16 to 20 minute kind of opening act where we're yeah. introduced to Everett and then to Faye. And we just meet all of these characters. We get a sense of who they are completely as individuals and really no introduction of the plot. Now, once you watch the film, you start to piece together that there are some hints that things are amiss and that's why he's even there at the high school basketball game. You know, there's something wrong with the equipment and the frequencies and whatnot, but it really isn't about establishing plot at all. And Josh, I'm someone who usually would say, you know, skip the exposition, just cut right to the action. This is a movie that skips the action in a way, but also doesn't really give us any exposition. It just throws us into this world with these characters. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's mini world building is what's going yes. on. Yeah. Yeah. So, that film from director Andrew Patterson, The Vast of Night, is available exclusively on Amazon Prime. And we are going to close out our Golden Brick segment here with some listener recommendations and two more from you, Josh, too, that you've seen that are on my watch list. Yeah, so the first of these is Clementine reviewed this uh, quite a bit earlier 
in the year, and it's the feature debut from director Lara Gallagher. Reeling from a breakup, a woman breaks into her ex's lake house, and there she strikes up a complicated relationship with a provocative younger woman. And yeah, I like this quite a bit. I think the two lead performances by Atmara Marrero and Sydney Sweeney are incredibly compelling in a relationship that's constantly in flux. They're they're like sisters one moment, um, then it's kind of a mentor-mentee relationship. They toy with being lovers in a way. It's constantly changing, and there are you know key influences on this film that make it incredibly compelling, like Ingmar Bergman's um, Persona or Cries and Whispers or Henri-Georges Clouseau's Diabolique. So there's a lot of mystery and suspense going on here. Um, And in terms of formal vision, just some beautiful cinematography. This is set at a lake house, as I said, and there's so much dappled sunlight in this movie um, that just kind of captures the mood that really set it apart for me. So that is Clementine. And then the other one we wanted to get to here at the end is Sella and the Spades, the feature debut from Tyresha Poe. In this film, the new girl at an esteemed prep school is drawn into the daily aggressions of warring senior class factions. And though I did like this quite a bit, Adam, I didn't like it quite as much as our producer, Sam. So I'm going to go to his letterboxed review, actually, and quote from that because uh, he gave this a four out of five star review on Letterboxd. He says... It's no easy task to make a manipulative bully your sympathetic hero, but Poe and the incredible lovey Simone, that's the lead actress, pull it off. And in the process, they remind us that teens are constantly navigating morally precarious waters that, if we're lucky, many of us have long sailed clear of. So again, that's Sella and the Spades, um, nominated by me, but heartily nominated and recommended by Sam. It's available right now exclusively on Amazon Prime. Here are some of those listener recommendations, Josh, movies that we have not caught up with yet and may not quite make the cut here, but in the interest of discovery, which is what the Golden Brick segment is all about, we wanted to pass these titles along to you, including one we're going to get to, at least one that I had never even heard of, and now I can't wait to see Josh. We'll start with Liam Foucher in Edmonton, Alberta. He says, I wanted to recommend my favorite movie of the year so far, Ash. Ash is an unlikely movie. It was filmed on a minimal budget by a small team. Its lead actor stepped in a day before production. It was forced to incorporate British Columbia's wildfires into the story when production locations went up in flames, and it tackles some of the most uncomfortable subject matter imaginable with humility, poise, and Malick-esque spirituality. This is director Andrew Hukuliak's second film, but he's still up and coming. I think that he's the most exciting director working in Canada right now. This film is challenging to say the least, but it is boldly ambitious and so worth your time. The moment I finished it, I thought this should win the golden brick. We love that thought, Liam. I don't know how widely available Ash is, but if we have any details on it, we will put it in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. First I heard of it. Sounds great. Chaos cinema. Sounds like some a little chaos cinema there. Andre Cadeau from Charlottesville, Virginia says, I'll be brief. For your consideration, Miss Juneteenth, the first feature film from Channing Godfrey Peoples. Yeah, I've seen a couple of people sing the praises of Miss Juneteenth. Here's another one from Johan Ander. He's in Stockholm and says, a tip mostly to Josh, maybe, Gunda. It's a documentary about pigs, cows, and a one-legged chicken in black and white and with no dialogue or soundtrack. It's breathtaking and an absolute gem. Could be a brick contender. 
I don't know. Is it something about that, Adam? Maybe maybe Thanksgiving viewing. Maybe I'll try to catch up with Gunda over Thanksgiving. So, of course, Johan there is remembering our famous, as film spotting fame goes, disagreement over Leviathan. Oh. You apparently are now the world's only champion of that kind of immersive cinema, yeah. Josh. Leviathan, and yet, one of the best you know films of, yeah. of this century, Adam. I know. I know. And I, I didn't go for it the way you did. But based on Johan's description, and actually, I just got a set of screeners in the mail today that included Gunda. And I read a little bit more about it just in the kind of little description with the disc. And I'm all in. I cannot wait to watch Gunda. That's one I'm going to catch up with. And we'll see Josh, if it indeed will make our short list of golden brick candidates. All right. We can fight over it. Yep. Andrew Rivet here with a sci-fi film. He says he just went to a sci-fi film festival and saw this new release, United Arab Emirates, female director, black and white period piece about a village that sacrifices a daughter from each family to the ocean. It's a movie called scales again, not familiar with its release availability, but we'll link to more in our show notes. If we have it, it does sound intriguing. Indeed. Here's Jonathan Kana from central Texas. How you doing, Jonathan? He's got a question here for us. Have either of you got Dean Capsalis's tiny feature debut, The Swerve, on your radar yet? If not, I highly recommend adding it to the Brick watch list. It's available as a VOD rental and well worth consideration for its highly compelling portrait of a woman's descent into mental illness. Although billed as a thriller, it's really much more of an intense psychological drama painted in austere tones with a script that's every bit as taut as it is gritty. There are no Hitchcockian twists or supernatural reveals in this picture, but in its own way, it does a fine job of bending reality around the viewer such that, as the protagonist descends into madness, we're not entirely sure what's real and what isn't. Until, that is, it's unforgettable climax, which I dare not spoil here. It may be the best movie you'll never want to watch again this year, and perfectly the sort of thing that ought to garner this director some more attention than he seems to be getting for a first feature. So, interested, after reading Jonathan's email, googled it, one of the first reviews that came up was from Sheila O'Malley over at rogerebert.com. Four stars, Josh, for okay. The Swerve. So Jonathan, it seems, knows what he's talking about, and it's one we should add to our ever-growing list. And we will include our lists, plus all the ways you can see these movies and the listener recommendations over at filmspotting.net. You can click on lists to find our Golden Brick page or go to filmspotting.net slash bricks in december as i mentioned we'll narrow that list down to three to five titles and we will be looking for your vote and if you want to start lobbying now for which title should make that list of finalists go ahead and start the campaigns feedback at filmspotting.net so Sean Durkin's debut film, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, was a 2011 Golden Brick nominee. When we come back, we'll revisit our review of his follow-up, The Nest, which is now available to rent on demand. We'll also share the new holiday-themed film spotting poll. Stay with us. You're a concept worth exploring. Never nervous, never boring. I don't want to mess it up. No, I don't want to mess it up.
It's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. That's from the trailer for Josh? Mank! Make from director David Fincher. We haven't even reviewed the movie yet, and we have just buried that joke. Just, <laughs> oh, just yeah. beating it right into the ground. Never is gets currently, old. <laughs> it's currently playing in limited release and comes exclusively to Netflix on December 4th. Next week, we will have a review of the period Hollywood drama starring Gary Oldman as Citizen Kane screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz. We are also planning, Josh a 10th anniversary sacred cow review of David Fincher's, I'd say mostly beloved, The Social Network, which also kind of makes sense to close out the year this way after looking back on the best films of the decade, The Social Network making my top 20 list. But I'm going to have a quick on-air production meeting, and I just want to throw out Mm -hmm. that as good as this show sounds, as much as I actually do want to revisit The Social Network, we are fortunate as critics right now to be in the midst of screener season. Mm. We're getting a lot of links. We have a lot of movies. Josh, it's late November. We're going to be recording our top 10 films of the year show. I like where you're going. Before you know it. And I'm just saying, as much as I do want to talk about that movie, it just seems criminal almost to spend any time looking at a film from 10 years ago and not a 2020 release. There are so many titles we need to see and want to see and might deserve some of our time on the show. Am I, am I convincing you? I'm sold. I mean, you know, it's rare <laughs> that we're on the same <laughs> yeah. wavelength, but these last two days I've been thinking the exact same thing. It's at the point where I have to like slot in what I'm going to watch when, which day. And I'm looking right. at my calendar and I'm like, okay, when am I going to put in the social network? Cause I'm interested in revisiting it as well. I think that's egregiously overrated where you place it in terms of the top 20 of, of the decade, but still I like it. I'd like to reappraise it, but yeah, I think my time might be better spent right now catching Hmm. up with something from 2020. So I'm all for it. If Sam lets us, I don't know if Sam's going to let us get away with it, but yeah, that's the thing. I I don't know if he will either. And here we've now made the mistake of telling our listeners what the show was going to be. Right. And they probably liked the original suggestion better. And now also you've set it up almost like it could be a bit of a showdown over the social network and who doesn't want to hear that. So you're not helping your cause. Josh. Yeah. I, well, we can maybe cut that out, but uh, yeah, otherwise you and I just stage a revolt. We'll just have to revolt okay. Adam. We could do that. I mean, ultimately we're the ones talking into the mics, right? <laughs> Good point. And, and Sam can decide not to edit it and then we're in trouble. Also on next week's show, Massacre Theater, that's the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt in case you missed it. Here's a bit of last week's Massacre. Why is hate less vital than love? I don't know, but somehow you'll fail. Something will defeat you. Life will defeat you. So I'm not going to give any more clues because I've already been called to task for being too obvious in my clues last week. So uh, if you didn't hear that, you'll just have to go back, listen to it on that show, and you'll get a clue. If you do know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, November 30th, and the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. I certainly thought you made it obvious, Josh, but wow. 
there are not many entries in the film spotting oh, no. mailbag. The hat at this point is not going to be brimming. Uh-oh. So maybe we needed to be even more obvious. We're going to stop, though, with the clues. And maybe you'll just have to get it from our terrible performances. Speaking of not terrible performers, Michael Shannon stars in the new movie Echo Boomers. We had a giveaway last week on the show. This new film, a crime thriller, is about a criminal operation made up of rebellious college grads who steal from the rich and, well, they just keep the stuff. Along with Michael Shannon, it stars Patrick Schwarzenegger and Alex Pettifer. It is available now to buy or rent on digital. And we asked people to tell us simply what your favorite Michael Shannon performance is. A lot of entries and a fair amount of variation in the submissions. Some people said Midnight Special, the William Friedkin adaptation of the Tracy Let's Play Bug, even his appearance in They Came Together, the David Wayne romantic comedy spoof starring Amy Poehler. And one of our five winners, Josh, Kyle Bailey, He's going to get a free digital download. He said his favorite Michael Shannon performance is in the Ramin Barani film, 99 Homes. He plays Gordon Gecko. if he was a vape-smoking evictor and is absolutely fantastic. Good film, and I think Michael Shannon is very good in it. Kyle is right. But while most of our entries really thought there was one obvious answer, I'm going to let you do the honors. We have four additional winners of that Echo Boomers digital download code. Here's Cortland Funk's pick. I love when he shows up in small parts as a menacing heel, but Take Shelter is probably his finest performance on screen. Eric Severstad agrees. Take Shelter for fave Shannon performance. Just perfect. And Jeremy from Iowa City says pretty much the same. The answer is now and always will be Take Shelter. Case closed. Our last winner is Kathy. She lives in the Adirondack Mountains of New York State. Her number one, Shannon's dramatic reading of the crazy letter that a sorority president sent to her sisters. I believe this is a funny or die skit that Shannon was a part of. Tied with number one, Kathy says, though, take shelter. (laughs) So more love for take shelter. But Kathy was not alone in sending us that YouTube link. And I have to confess, I didn't see it when it came out, and I haven't watched it yet, so I can't comment on whether or not it should be in the pantheon of Michael Shannon performances, but I look forward to it. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you to all of our winners. We will email you that digital download code. And Josh, we've got some more streaming links to give away for the new film Dreamland from Paramount Pictures. It's available as well to buy or rent on digital. It's also playing in select theaters. It stars Margot Robbie as a fugitive bank robber. Finn Cole is the young man torn between claiming the bounty on her head and his growing attraction to the seductive criminal. Roxana Haddadi, writing for the AV Club, said the film makes the most of its sparseness using the strong performances of its ensemble cast, including a reliably excellent Margot Robbie to question the accepted boundaries between right and wrong, citizen and outlaw. If that sounds good to you and you want a chance at one of those free streaming links, just email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You know our game at this point. Just put Dreamland, the movie's title, in the subject line, and then tell us your favorite Margot Robbie performance. I think it's pretty tough, Josh. Yeah, it could be I, Tanya. That got her a lot of attention. How about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I think she came on most people's radars with The Wolf of Wall Street. And Adam, you and I are both fans. Can you believe this movie is actually a 2020 movie? It came out in the before times. Birds of Prey. She's quite good. (laughs) 
in Birds of Prey. So you'll have to pick from those performances and maybe a few others. Just tell us your favorite Margot Robbie performance in the email. Give us the subject line, Dreamland. Again, Dreamland is available to buy or rent now and is playing in select theaters. The before times, Josh, is that what we're going with? I mean, feels like that, doesn't it? <laughs> One way you can support Film Spotting is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. Five bucks a month gets you a lot ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed. You get a merch discount. You get monthly bonus episodes. We just put out what I think is another really fun one that we were maybe ambivalent about to start, just like our October episode about formative political movies. And it turned out to be a really entertaining, at least for me, riff on some movies that were great back when we were kids. Some movies that we saw as adults that we appreciated a little bit more than the rest of our critical brethren. And, you know, I got to talk about Eddie and the Cruisers again, so I'm happy. Turkeys we love. Do, do you feel a weight has lifted? It was a little bit like coming out of the confessional booth, Adam. Yeah. Yeah, it was. We also offer exclusively to our family members on Patreon the ability to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events. We have the fifth installment coming up. Trivia spotting, subsequent movie film trivia game. <laughs> we change the title every week. We added game to the end. And I got to say, it's funnier that way. I like so, it. Well done, Sam. That is Friday, December 11th. Tickets on sale now for our film spotting family members. We thank all of them for their support. You can join the family over on patreon.com slash film spotting. What I know about is Texas down here. You're on your own. The indelible M. Emmett Walsh in the trailer for Blood Simple, the 1985 directing debut from the Coen Brothers. A couple weeks back, we asked you who made the best 80s directing debut. Your options in chronological order were Jim Henson, The Great Muppet Caper, Michael Mann, Thief, Sam Raimi, The Evil Dead, Amy Heckerling, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Rob Reiner, This is Spinal Tap. Blood Simple, Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape coming at the end of the decade, or one of the other films that was directed by a first-time Helmer back in the 80s. Josh, how did it come out? Well, these these bottom results kind of hurt me personally here, Adam. In last place, Jim Henson for The Great Muppet Caper. Only 2% of the vote. Other got 3%. And then Spike Lee, She's Gotta Have It. With 5% of the vote, I think more people need to see She's Gotta Have It. Receiving 6% of the vote here is Amy Heckerling for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Sam Raimi came in next for The Evil Dead with 7% of the vote. Steven Soderbergh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, 8%. Michael Mann's Thief, 10%. Big jump here now to Rob Reiner's This Is Spinal Tap. Got 26% of the vote, but that wasn't enough to beat Blood Simple and the Coen Brothers, winning wow. it with 31%. Johan Ander says, it's simple, blood simple. <laughs> Here's Jim Polini. The last episode of All in the Family aired in 1978, and we didn't see much of Rob Reiner until This is Spinal Tap was released in 1984. It was worth the wait. Rob Reiner, the director, seemed to arrive fully formed and in complete control of a film that relied so heavily on improvisation and comedic tone. This was not beginner's luck as he followed Spinal Tap with The Princess Bride, Stand By Me, and when Harry met Sally in the 80s alone and showed the same mastery of tone management as he did with his debut. 
Jim with the correct answer there. Kathy Woder says Spinal Tap is one of the funniest and most quotable movies of all time and the progenitor of the mockumentary. And I love that I get to use this word again on our show, Josh. Every other answer, Kathy says, is just a shit sandwich. And I also like that because that's that's in my top two favorite lines in all of Spinal Tap. This is just a foul, foul episode of Film Spatter. Yes. Here's Stephen Hill. Thief. Who else can say they shaped not only the look and feel of crime thrillers for the next 30 years, but crime TV as well? Michael Mann came out sleek and stylish, and everyone else was playing catch-up. I love Spinal Tap and Blood Simple, but even Blood Simple owes a debt to Thief. Noah Trainer here with a movie that is really speaking to me, Josh, because as you know, I did lobby for this title to be included. Ultimately, Sam the Dictator left it out, and that's fine. Fast Times at Ridgemont High in its place. Also a very good movie, a movie, of course, that this filmmaker wrote. We're talking about Cameron Crowe, and Noah says it's an absolute crime for say anything to be left off this poll. I'm in the last year of my teens, and since graduating high school, it's been a nonstop ride of anxiety about career paths, insecurities, about relationships, and excitement about the potential of the future. More so than any other film from the 80s, Say Anything is able to capture and balance those emotions, and it still holds up and is emotionally relevant today. Noah's right, Josh, and... You know, if you are listening to this, Noah, have you looked into kickboxing? Sport of the future? (laughs) All right. Let's round up here with Bryson, who is speaking my language. Tim Burton's full-length feature debut, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, is my pick. The soundtrack, the memeable bits, the pervasiveness in culture. This is arguably one of the best films of the 80s. And so this is my pick for best debut film by a director. Wow. All of those phrases defending his pick. No mention of Large Marge. Oh, Large Marge. So great. Haunted <laughs> haunted my young nightmares. Thank you to everyone who left us a great comment. You can do that as well with the new film spotting poll. We're asking about Christmas movies. Somehow, it seems, a topic we haven't covered in a film spotting poll in all the years of the show. We must truly be Grinches. The new poll, not a question so much as a Christmas movie death match, albeit one with a lot of combatants. We picked one and only one title from every decade going back to the 40s. You have to pick one movie. If you could only watch one holiday movie on repeat for the rest of your life, Mm -hmm. which one would it be, Josh, the options? And the ones you don't pick, they get burnt. They're done. They're gone. In the fire. Okay, here are your options. From the 1940s, It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Capra's 1946 classic starring Jimmy Stewart. From the 50s, White Christmas, 1954, Bing Crosby, Rosemary Clooney, and Danny Kaye, directed by Michael Curtiz. What what other masterpiece did Curtiz direct, Adam, that that I couldn't quite recall? And trivia spotting. (laughs) I think you're... Imagining Mildred Pierce or Casablanca, I think Josh, it was, maybe? I think it was Casablanca. <laughs> yeah. All right. From the 60s, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Sam notes, this is not a movie he understands, but a 65 TV special. Probably the most beloved Christmas-themed production from the 60s, along with How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which was also TV. I would editorialize here and add Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, another TV special from the 60s that should be considered in this group, but we're going 
your option is a Charlie Brown Christmas. 1970s, Rankin and Bass's Santa Claus is Coming to Town. The 70s, Sam notes, also not a big decade for Christmas movies, but a big one for Rankin and Bass. They did Rudolph too, by the way. From the 1980s, A Christmas Story, Sorry Christmas Vacation Fans, Sam went with this 83 classic from director Bob Clark. From the 1990s, uh, Home Alone. Yeah. Written by John Hughes, directed by Christopher Columbus. We could have just left out the 90s, probably. I mean, why bother with the 90s? (laughs) From the 2000s, Elf, Will Ferrell, directed by Jon Favreau. All right, Adam, you mentioned in Slack there was an obvious choice here. I would Mm -hmm. agree with that, but I fear (laughs) you have not selected the right obvious choice. What are you going with? Well, I assumed that we shared the obvious answer, but if anybody could confound me with their choice, it would be you, Josh. (laughs) I'm going to say it comes down to two films Mm -hmm. because they are the two quintessential holiday movies. And I know that partly because I think it's TBS or TNT or both of them play these two movies the most Mm. between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Mm. And I love both. It's either It's a Wonderful Life from the 1940s or 1980s, A Christmas Story. And ultimately, I'm going with It's a Wonderful Life. I'm going cliche, Hmm. conventional wisdom. It's the Capra. Well, um, both of those are incorrect, actually. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. You're probably going Charlie Brown, (laughs) aren't you? It's Charlie Brown. Of course. I mean, okay, the technicality that it's TV, I guess. I can see that. But beyond the fact, Adam, that it retains Schultz's line drawings, the animation is just so perfectly simple beyond the fact that it allows for a despondent Christmas in Charlie Brown, which we all experience as well. It doesn't always have to be happy and shiny beyond the fact that it makes room for the actual Christmas story from the Bible in a shockingly uh, denouement towards the end. That is just lovely. Adam, this is what I thought would sway you. Mm. The Vince Guaraldi trio score Adam Kempner, Mr. Jazz. I mean, yeah. this, this is the music that I listen to the most during the holiday season. It is just so wonderful. You, you that's gotta, that's gotta melt your heart. Here's the problem, Josh. I haven't seen a Charlie Brown Christmas since I was probably seven years old. Oh, so there's no way it would be in contention. And in this fact, Christmas, if Sam and this Christmas revisit it, it, it. Well, maybe, but if Sam had subbed in what should be here from the 1960s, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oh, that's great, that too. Might have been, that might have been a competition yeah. for me. I would respect that. It's that one's life. wonderful. Okay, so clearly we're at war over <laughs> the best holiday movie. I think it's right in the, the holiday spirit. Yes. And in early voting, no surprise, most people are smart like me, Josh, who oh, think yeah. It's Wonderful Life is the best. Going out on it's the running limb. away with it. Brave souls. The 80s. The eight, how about this, though? You're really going to lose faith in our listeners. The 80s and the 90s duking it out for second. Oh, who are these on. Home Alone fans oh, out there? Oh, my gosh. That is just a brutal, brutal crime against cinema. <laughs> There's only one you freaking monsters comment so far that's listener jt becker but the poll is young you can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net 
All right, let's highlight what's going on over at our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's part two of their Family Feud double feature. So this means they're looking at The Nest, the latest from Sean Durkin. We've mentioned it a few times, starring Jude Law and Carrie Coon. They've paired that with Ang Lee's The Ice Storm from 1997. So you've got two period family dramas here. The Nest, as we've mentioned, has been playing in limited release. It's currently available to rent via VOD. So the MPS hosts discussing this, Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky, of course. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. And more info is at nextpictureshow.net. Let's hear a clip from The Nest before Adam and I get to our revisit of our review from earlier this year. I think we need to move. What are you talking about? I thought things were great. Mm -mm. Things are dried up here. This would be our fourth move in 10 Turn years. Backwards. But money's fine, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Adam, The Nest was on our radar largely due to its writer-director, Sean Durkin, who wowed us in 2011 with the psychological drama Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. That review, it was my first my very first as a guest host on the show, which gives you an idea of how long it's been until this Durkin's second feature. Still, I came out of the nest thinking that the movie belonged to a different member of its creative team, Carrie Coon. Coon plays Allison O'Hara, a horse trainer and wife to an English high finance broker named Rory. Jude Law is playing Rory, and I think he was born, Adam, to pronounce the name. I'm going to try this. Rory O'Hara. Mm -hmm. Love how he says that. He chews into that name. It's the 1980s in the movie. And Allison and Rory, along with Samantha, played by Una Roche, Allison's teen daughter from a previous relationship, and Benjamin, played by Charlie Shotwell, the younger son they had together, they all live a seemingly idyllic, upscale life in a woodsy, modernist home outside of New York City. One morning, Rory makes an unwelcome proposal. Given the coming financial boom expected in London, the family should pick up and move. To sweeten the deal, he even promises a country estate where Allison could have a stable of her own. And so she relents. Now, Kuhn isn't exactly a new name, Adam. She had a healthy early career on the stage, including American Players Theater, the Wisconsin company producer Sam and Family Call Home, and Chicago's Steppenwolf Theater. Her screen breakthroughs came with HBO's Leftovers and a supporting part in David Fincher's Gone Girl. She's since been a part of FX's Fargo, popped up as a minor villain in the last two Avengers films, and had a small part in Steve McQueen's Widows. The Nest, at least from what I've seen of her work, is the first time she's really had a chance to own the screen. And oh my, does she own it. We'll get to the particulars of her performance, Adam, but I want to start just by asking if any other star-making turns from other actors came to mind as you watched Kuhn take this movie by the jugular. Maybe it's someone who was in a similar story. Maybe it's a familiar acting approach. Maybe it comes down to how Kuhn wears the movie's period setting. Who did Kuhn remind you of here, and how did she also make The Nest all her own? 
I don't know about star making turns specifically, and it's totally possible, Josh, that this answer is influenced by some of the promotional images I've seen online, in addition, obviously, to watching the film. But you look at the movie poster, for example, where she's looking into a mirror, I believe, and she's wearing this dinner dress, and she's got the flowing hair looking very blonde. And then there's another shot of her I've seen pop up in a few places where I think she's maybe wearing the same dress, and it's the same flowing blonde hair, but she's holding that cigarette in a very dignified way. There's something a little bit Danuvian about Coon, mm. perhaps. There's a regal quality to her, but not an iciness. There's a frankness, and in this role, especially an earthiness. And it's funny because my mind also goes to someone like Isabelle Huppert as a comparison, another French actress. And Watching this movie, I did think a lot about Don't Look Now, the Nicholas Rogue film with the English Manor House and the hints of psychological horror that we get. So maybe I'd throw in Julie Christie, too, even though, first of all, I'm not sure any of those actresses could pull off Coon's ecstatic dance scene in the bar we get <laughs> kind of near the end of this film. It's really wonderful. But also Allison, Coon's character, her Americanness is a fairly major part of her character. And I also think about Coon's performance in Bug, the Tracy Let's Play at Steppenwolf, which I'm so grateful I caught just under the COVID wire, I think in early February. She plays a character there, certainly on the fringes of American society. So maybe I'll just say she's a unique talent giving a unique, really powerful performance. And I will note that I think Jude Law is up to the challenge here as well. Oh, yeah. And yeah, maybe somebody we take for granted as a really serious actor. One of the best scenes in the film is his in the backseat of a taxi. But we are invested because of Kuhn. And I don't know how to really quantify this or articulate it in a way that isn't just about a feeling I got watching The Nest. But I was anticipating potentially interviewing Carrie Coon. So I was thinking about, obviously, the questions I might ask her as I was watching and as I was thinking about the film. And my first question was going to be how she as an actor considers or not genre when she's approaching a role, how it maybe informs certain ideas she has. And then when she's on set in the moment, actually playing scenes, because I do think Sean Durkin here pretty craftily navigates a couple of different fronts. It's billed as a thriller. We could maybe debate that a little bit. There is this pseudo horror aspect to it. I mentioned Don't Look Now. It's hard not to think a little bit about The Shining, right? Because there is there is something maybe supernatural afoot in this place, and it seems to be affecting their behavior. But at its core, it's this domestic drama with a husband and wife having to confront the deception in their marriage and their self-deception, how they convince themselves everything is fine and they're happy. Some of those horror elements and the thriller qualities are surely on the page, but mostly, Josh, I think it's conveyed here in the filmmaking, right? It's the, it's the creepiness of a slow zoom on a character from a distance, for example, mm -hmm. or following a character through a space slowly in real time. So we then experience her surprise at a door being open right along with her. It puts us in her same headspace. It's the overall mood and tone that comes from the production design, the sound design, the score here. That's really provocative. I think the shots and the pacing. So to the performer in the moment, is being in a thriller or a horror movie something you're processing and kind of knowingly participating in? Does it actually alter your performance in some way? Or are you only thinking about your 
character, what they want, what they need, scene to scene, moment to moment. I obviously didn't get a chance to ask her that question. I can hazard a guess, but I won't try to answer for Carrie Coon. But this movie probably doesn't work as well as it does if it strains too hard to amplify or deliver any of those elements. And it definitely doesn't work if Coon strains, if we don't see her as a woman who is stuck in a bad situation, but has total agency. If we don't see her as a flawed mother who recognizes those flaws and wants to be better than she is. And as someone who has no problem occasionally justifiably carving up her husband and acting out in a way that doesn't feel wicked necessarily just wickedly fun. Mm, yeah. Wickedly righteously fun. Yes. That's <laughs> how yes. I would describe it. Um, so two of those, you know, things you mentioned that came to mind for you, I think capture sort of what she's doing here perfectly. And it is the play bug, which I didn't see on stage, but I did see the movie. And in that case, uh, Ashley Judd is playing, I'm assuming the role that Carrie Coon played. Mm -hmm. And, you know, bug is something that is incredibly, I don't think this is a word, but scranky is <laughs> sort of <laughs> the material, um, I would say. And then you have Deneuve, who you mentioned, who you're right, Regal. And this role, this performance is the perfect blend of those things. She's regally scranky. She's scrankily <laughs> regal. And, mm -hmm. and it works brilliantly for what this movie is going for. Um, I did. I think I was influenced by the 1980s setting, too, because I brought uh, what came to mind for me is sort of the Terminator toughness of Lim Linda Hamilton and then mm -hmm. going to that hairdo. Yeah, I kept thinking of working girl Melanie Griffith, you know, totally. and, and there again are two sort of opposite personas that somehow Kuhn gets to work together mm -hmm. in the same role. Um, you know, Kate Blanchett and Carol came to mind. Jennifer Lawrence in American Hustle. I know we split on that film, but that was such an electric, like, even though I'm part of an ensemble, I'm grabbing this movie and making it mine when I'm on the screen. Um, and then I even thought, Adam, about our recent Betty Davis marathon. There might be a bit of Judith Trahern from Dark Victory here. You know, yeah. this social A little bit of that wickedness, a little bit of the oh, maliciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, but but still, in at least in Dark Victory, someone we're ultimately sympathetic with, right? Mm -hmm. When her life gets turned upside down by this medical diagnosis, there's both a tenderness and a fire to that performance, and I think you get some of that with, with Allison in the nest. Um, but mostly, what you get, you know, are not these things that she brings to mind, but her own wonderful work. The dance scene is, you know, certainly a highlight in this movie because of. Not just what she's doing in the moment, um, which is so entertaining, but what it means for her, right? This mm -hmm. comes after later in the film. And I think we can just say, here's one thing that kind of held me back on the movie is once we saw that this was a bad decision by the family, which we knew before they even go to England, it kind of just reiterates, yeah, this was a bad decision. Mm. So there aren't, a lot, there aren't a lot of narrative surprises, at least for me in the nest, um, which is to say, I don't think I'm spoiling much to point out that. That Allison, it's an awakening for Allison that Rory isn't really what she thought he was. Or maybe, you know, how much was she had she been deluding herself about him? Delusion. By moving exactly. Yeah. yeah. By moving to England, she has to confront that delusion. Mm -hmm. And then what is she going to do about it? Well, one of the things she does at this client dinner she's been invited to, where he is being his smarmy self, and she just cannot take it anymore. She sabotages the dinner, um, just like so vindictively. Um, very Betty Davis moment there. Mm -hmm. Um and then 
leaves, leaves him stranded with the clients and his coworkers feeling foolish. And yeah, that's when she just goes to a club and has this, it's sort it's sort of a celebration independent moment. Um, but it's also a very lonely moment. You know, I think, I think Durkin films it that way. Um, and, and Kuhn performs the scene as one of exaltation, but also loneliness. Um, and I think that's why it is such a special moment in the film. So you get that, you get, you know, another great dinner scene where um, she kind of challenges him on their financial mm-hmm. situation. And when he, you know, not too convincingly claims everything is fine, she begins to order every expensive item off the menu for the both of them. Um, that is a great scene as well. And it, it's kind of just another moment where Allison shows that she had maybe been deferring to Rory in yeah. this marriage. But really, if anyone took five minutes to watch this marriage, she was the one who was in command, who was in charge, um, who knew what was best for the family. And it's really been an issue of when was she going to take that role Um firmly and not let him continue to play this game. You know, the game when we first meet him, when they're still in the U.S., where he makes breakfast and right. and he wants to drive them to school. And you understand fairly early on, that's like... Yeah, it's a con. It's a... You got it. That's it. Yeah. The scene you mentioned, I'm just smiling, thinking to myself about her wine tasting. And you'll have to see the nest to fully appreciate <laughs> yes. what I'm referring to. But one of the things you mentioned, that's another way that this movie is like the shining and that it's really not so much about the location that's this sinister presence all of those issues and tensions and frailties existed already inside jack torrance we certainly talked about that the last time we revisited the shining and i think you get that here as well in that she just pushes back even harder and is more brazen and more rightfully, as we said, righteously indignant. And he's just even more ruthless and hurtful and pretty smug and quick diversion I already praised the performance of Jude Law as Rory. And you talked about Melanie Griffith and Working Girl. Maybe it's because we were recently on Blank Check and we talked about romancing the stone with Griffin and David. But I do think Law here is so perfectly balanced between charming. He really is charming. You can see how it works on a lot of people. And of course, just so absurdly smug. And maybe it's the 80s milieu And maybe it's the Gordon Gecko ethos that he espouses. But can you imagine a version of this movie in the 80s where Mm. a 40-something Michael Douglas played Rory? We'd have to to figure out the British accent part or wherever they were going, right? But otherwise, Douglas could totally nail this. And I think Law does as well. Yeah, I I think, you know, you know... Rory is a weasel from the start. I think with Douglas, you'd know when you saw his name in the opening credits, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's, yeah. No, that's, that's maybe the maybe the only difference. But Rory, yeah, Law is good here. I don't mean to downplay his contributions. I I think um, maybe Rory isn't, and this goes back to the not any real lack of narrative surprise. Rory isn't the most complicated of characters. Once we kind of we have an inkling of who he is. Once Allison confirms that, that's pretty mm-hmm. much, much what you get. But Law layers each moment. He does of that character with the cockiness you mentioned but also the insecurity which you know just kind of once he knows allison is on to him that insecurity just starts seeping out of him right this and a low level panic there it is a low level panic takes its place and there's a very crucial scene that could have been a throwaway scene that durkin includes um where rory visits his estranged mother for the Mm -hmm. first time in we get a sense i don't know maybe 15 maybe 20 years something like that and it really doesn't serve a function in the plot the movie doesn't i can tell right yep 
movie doesn't need it in terms of plot. Um, and what does he do? He spins this braggy yarn that his mother clearly is not buying. Beautiful right? blonde American wife. Yeah. And notice he leaves out in the story. He leaves out the a stepdaughter. Child. Yep. Yeah. Only talks about, you know, the biological child he had with Allison. But Law in that scene, the tiny constrictions that kind of go across his face while he's talking, trying to keep up this con with his mother. Um, it is it is a really layered, incredible performance from Law. Yeah, it is. And you're right here that the characters' word choices, and like another movie we're going to talk about here in a little bit, the actions reveal so much. So right away, we understand the family dynamic when we hear Samantha, the daughter, call him Rory. And mm-hmm. the other child calls him dad. And he... <laughs> not maybe intentionally or maybe intentionally cuts her out of the picture that they take of the family when they arrive at the new estate. Oh, you know what? Let's get her in a shot now. Now that I've gotten the shot, that's just the family that he obviously really cares about and thinks. Nice little detail. Yeah, this is his child. The other one isn't. So she can just be left out. And then you're right. He doesn't mention the daughter to his mother. And did you notice, too, I'm pretty sure it's only in that taxi scene I referenced earlier when he's trying to take credit for being a good dad. Does he all of a sudden claim to have two kids? Mm -hmm. Then he's the father of two kids. Yeah. yeah. Josh, because the numbers the numbers help him there. So you're right. (laughs) I think with this movie that the surprises aren't really within the narrative, but the revelations are all character based and Mm -hmm. they all are performance based and they mostly are tied to Allison and Kuhn's performance. But I do think we get some of those layers, as you said, and a bit of a reckoning for Jude Law's character as well. But those two showpieces in this movie are the dinner scenes. And you touched on one. I don't want to spoil it either. But I love that Rory is talking at one point about the wonder of being in such close proximity to a great actor and forget being in the front row of a theater. She gets to sit right next to him and watch him perform Mm -hmm. every single time they're together. Every time he opens his mouth, whether he's doing it just for her or he's doing it for a larger audience and Coons first instinctual reaction there is just so perfect right and there's there's also subtler moments with her where we get one of those kind of long close-ups the camera just stays on her during a toast though i think we see rory's reaction for most of the shot maybe the entire shot even though it's mostly on her as it's moving closer to her and you get the pride and the obliviousness on rory's face because he's being talked about so of course he's happy but you then see on her face the recognition of the consequences, I think, in that moment of this decision and, and yeah. of the this marriage. The realities of this marriage are starting to set in because that is a moment where we know something that she doesn't until then. And I think it's possible that Durkin still would have given us this moment without this small revelation. She would still be having this reaction. But earlier in the film, when he positioned the move to her, he, of course, lied. And suggested that this old colleague, his old boss, reached out to him and said, I have an opportunity for you. And in that toast, the old boss reveals that Rory contacted him. So those little betrayals, those little indiscretions, those little secrets, they all hit her. And Kuhn, of course, nails that moment. But Durkin, of course, really sets it up nicely by giving us that steady close up that just moves in on her. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly performed scene of this imperceptible register registering 
of what maybe she has suspected and this reveal has confirmed it for her and really it it reorients her whole world right that that's kind of where the transition comes after that moment and i think it is a slow zoom into the close-up because you're right we see law we see rory taking in all the praise and then you know as it zooms closer in on her he gets cut out of the frame Right. So it's kind of like it becomes less about Rory's praise and all about her awareness. Um, And yeah, Kuhn is totally up to that moment. And Durkin uses slow zooms throughout. I mean, the opening shot is of their home back outside of New York. And it's a kind of this creepy horror movie style zoom out from their house. Yeah. So and, you know, I think I think uh, Martha. Marcy May Marlene for me was maybe a little more um, a little smoother of an integration of horror elements Um, and it was maybe more clearly psychological horror because so much of it was about being in that main character's head and and Mm -hmm. experiencing what she's experiencing Um, here unlike you maybe I never got a threat that there was any sort of supernatural force at play even though the movie climaxes in this you know where where things go really bad for all of the O'Hara's we won't spoil anything in like an extended parallel sequence Mm -hmm. And I think there's supposed to be a hint of something weird going on, maybe with with a horse we won't give away. Yeah, the door. Yeah, the door is is in there. Yeah, but I don't after she closed it. Yeah, I don't know if that I never really like bought that as, um, you know, say like something like hereditary. Um, And this movie, this movie doesn't want to be hereditary. um, Right. But it did come to mind watching it is like, you know, I'm not really. I'm not really into this as a horror movie, but I do have to ask you about the horse (laughs) because at first I thought, you know, this is a really clever way of sort of capturing the discombobulated state of the family. This Mm -hmm. is when they're still in the U.S. and Allison has agreed to this and she's trying to get her horse to go in the trailer to be transported, this transatlantic flight, and the horse doesn't want to go in, right? And it's it's like three seconds, but it's just kind of nice foreshadowing. But man- does Durkin return to this horse almost to the point where it becomes a comic metaphor? And maybe that was the intent mm-hmm. um, because without giving it away, but the, the trajectory of the horse to me <laughs> was maybe overdone a little bit. Yeah, no, I can see that. And I agree that I had the same reaction in terms of thinking, OK, as a metaphor for Allison <laughs> and specifically for their marriage, it's hard not to see it as pretty on the nose and maybe in fact there's something subtle about it and nuance that we're overlooking because it is that obvious but i don't think i had an issue with it josh because i was otherwise so engrossed in this movie and coon's performance is a big part of it as we have said but i want to give credit to durkin too and i know we have but i want to mention this as truly a sean durkin film and i didn't have a chance to rewatch martha may or even go back and revisit my notes so i'm not going to make that direct comparison even though i think what you said is accurate but in terms of the choices he makes this could be such a different film and such a less compelling film beyond those slow zooms we do get some of that psychological horror in those shots where we frequently see characters through glass or mm-hmm. there's a fractured effect. It starts right at the beginning after we do get that zoom out that you mentioned, or there's often a shading effect where some part of the frame is obscured by something. So you always kind of feel like you're, you're not getting the full picture and you're trying to look around objects. There's lots of uses of reflections. And during this great 
long take argument during the husband and wife and earlier in the film in a discussion that Allison is having with her mom before they leave Durkin really effectively cuts to the kids point of view during these arguments we hear what the daughter is hearing and experiencing in both of those instances which does ratchet up not only the tension but I would say the horror aspect in the sense of just the domestic horror having to having to experience it not just as viewers but we're then kind of put in the space of the kids who are going through it as as well. So there's just a sense to me that everything is very economical here. Everything is very deliberate. And another thing I would have asked Kuhn about is what it was like. And I'm sure she's worked with other directors who have done this, but Durkin strikes me. I could be wrong, but he strikes me as the type of filmmaker who probably is not relying on a lot of coverage, which usually actors talk about as being a good thing. They love kind of being in sync with the director, understanding their vision, knowing why the camera is there. They're not doing a bunch of extraneous acting or I guess wasting performances and wasting shots. Everything here is so clearly carefully considered and composed yeah and especially i would imagine if you have a theater background you know you would like that which which to me really comes out in that one bitter fight you were referencing back in the manor i think is the one you were talking about right the long shot um which gets you know that one is gets really scary that one i put on par with the 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 blowout in marriage story to be honest with you in terms of um the bitterness the anger Mm -hmm. the emotions on display um and and i almost makes me wonder too you know if having a theater background you kind of feel like you feel like coon and law and i don't know if law has a theater background but but they're truly acting for the person in front of them in that scene not the camera and part of it is of course the long take but it was sort of like the the I felt like I was watching a stage play in that scene. Yeah. Um, and, and it's Durkin is letting, giving them the space to do that, but it's also just how tied in um, they were to each other, oblivious to any sort of audience or any sort of camera. Um, and yeah, it gets really scary in there. You know, it, it's, it's on the verge of violence and, you know, back to what we've been talking about with Kuhn's performance, you kind of feel like Allison is going to more than hold her own. If this goes really sideways in this moment. And, and it's kind of scary. You mentioned, you know the scene with her and her mother which comes before they move and now that we're talking about it, it strikes me you know that's a that makes the scene with rory and his mother a nice bookend you know and i think there's a nice narrative balance there that durkin gives us two Good scenes point. one at the beginning one at the end of each of them with their their respective parent and we see their products to some extent of their environment completely yes Yep, exactly. And so that starts to flesh out, you know, despite what I said about Rory as a character, I think that scene is crucial and starting to flesh him out a little bit. Uh, we've mentioned Samantha, the daughter, the teenage daughter, a couple of times played by Una Roche. I think, I mean, everyone's good in this movie. Yes. This is just chock full of great performances. She stood out to me. Um, it, you know, she kind of has that. She vacillates back and forth uh, between genuine endearment for her Mm -hmm. for her parents for rory as well like it's it's not like that's a fractious relationship but then like utter disdain for them in the next moment and i think just uh, that's just you know it's true to life (laughs) and and she captures that really well and i also want to cite too as uh as rory's boss because every time he came on the screen i was just like oh this is going to be great michael culkin one of these guys you know has been in a ton of stuff um and he gets he gets a moment too right because he's he's welcoming rory back and and again not a major plot point but we'll let 
listeners discover it, there's a moment where their relationship takes a little turn and the way Culkin bears down um, on that mm-hmm. scene. Maybe I just enjoyed it because it was another scene of Rory <laughs> getting what's coming to him a little bit, which is a lot of what this movie consists of. Well, I just want to end by saying stop writing your emails. I'll correct Josh. Jude Law, of course, a proper British thespian. How dare you? Figured he suggest, had to be. Suggest that maybe he doesn't have a theater background. I mean, I'm pretty sure he played Henry V on the West End. He played Hamlet on Broadway. So, you know, let's give the guy his props there. Josh. There you go. You're embarrassing. And you're exhausting. I paid our rent. I paid for Ben's school. I bought you a car. I bought you a horse. I paid for construction on your barn. You're delusional. I'll make money for us. For us? It's not for us. It's so you can go to fancy parties and tell people we have horses. For the first time in years, I feel worthwhile. I feel powerful. You're a poor kid pretending to be rich. We don't have any friends here. We don't have any family. What does it matter so much to you? Because I deserve this! A lot more. That was us from September discussing The Nest, which is available now via VOD. And Josh, that is our show. It is. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at filmspotting.net in the show archives, you'll find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. Also on the website, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We have a holiday movie deathmatch for you. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Next week here on Film Spotting, we mentioned it earlier, we're definitely going to talk about David Fincher's Mank. What else is on the agenda? We will see. We were planning a Sacred Cow review of The Social Network, but we may have some more 2020 releases in store, and we'll hold off on that revisit of The Social Network. I guess you will have to tune in to find out. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Michigander from the EP Let Down. More information is at michiganderband.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.